TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. And now... You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. We have the privilege of speaking with former Prime Minister of Israel, Ewood Olmert. He was Prime Minister from 2006 to 2009. He led his country during the Second Lebanon War in 2006. He also destroyed the Syrian nuclear reactor in 2007. He also served as mayor of Jerusalem from 1993 to 2003. He was the only Israeli prime minister who served time in prison. And he's written a fascinating book called Searching for Peace, a Memoir of Israel. Mr. Prime Minister, thank you for joining us. So it's a fascinating book, and I, I wanted to begin at the beginning. You were formerly a member of the Likud because your father was involved in Beitar. How did you end up going from Likud, believing in greater Israel, both sides of the Jordan, where you ended up on the other side, where you wanted to make peace with the Palestinians, give away parts of Judea and Samaria and other areas? came from China. My grandfather is buried in the Jewish cemetery in Harbin, in northeast part of China, which is known as Manchuria. Uh, but uh, I and all my brothers were born in, in, the sta- in Israel, well, actually before the state was proclaimed, but we are uh, Israeli-born. Israeli-born, okay. But your father was in China, so fascinating. Um, have you been to China? Uh, yes, yeah, many times. Obviously, that's, that's a major player in today's world. So you come from a strong family, Irgun, um Beitar, and you were yourself with that. Uh, at what point in time did you just say, I want to change direction and just go in the opposite of the direction? Well, I really don't know if it's the opposite. I think that it uh, corresponds with certain basic fundamental principles of what Likud was all about when it was, before Likud even, when it was the Yergun, when the Revisionist Party and the uh, Herut Party of Menachem Begin uh, long before we established Likud, only in 1973. Until then, there was the Herut Party, and the two uh, two uh, banks of the Jordan was uh, the uh, the slogan that was attributed to the Herut Party in the late 40s, the beginning of the 50s, like 70 years ago and more. Uh, uh, the basic principles of the uh, Menachem Begin, who was in many different ways my godfather. Uh, was uh, equality and equal rights and uh, and uh, 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 respect for the rights of other people. Uh, and uh, perhaps this is the main reason why Menachem Begin, who promised that on the day that he will become prime minister, he will annex all the territories, including what he called Judea and Samaria, which is also known in the uh, political debate is the West Bank. But you used to call it Judea and Samaria too, right? Pardon? You used to call it Judea and Samaria at one point, didn't I you? Used to call it, I used to call it this way or the other way. It doesn't matter, really. It's, uh, you know, uh, well, I'm not obsessed with uh, these uh, sometimes uh, symbolic gestures. But uh, in any event, uh, the fact is that Menachem Begin, in the five years uh, that uh, in the six years that he was prime minister, never even tried to annex the territories. 
And the reason he didn't want to annex the territories is not because he didn't feel that these territories are historically part of it, uh, the Jewish people, but because he understood that it will not work, that it will not be possible to annex the territories without providing the uh, people living there with full equal rights uh, as part of the state of Israel. And if indeed he will do that, then uh, a short time afterwards, in a matter of years, the Palestinians will become the majority in the state of Israel, and Israel will cease to be what it was destined to be, which is a Jewish state. Therefore, he kept it without changing the status quo, but without annexing the territories. And I think that uh, he hoped that one day a guy like me will come up will become prime minister and will do what he was unable emotionally to do, which is to say, listen, this is our land. There's no question about it. By, by the way, I, I truly believe that this is our land. But sometimes when, when you want to achieve something which is greater for, to secure the future, you have to give up something which is yours in order to achieve a greater goal. And so the question is not whether this territory is ours or is theirs. There is no question about it in my mind. All the history of the Jewish people is buried, you know, underground in different parts of the West Bank, okay, in Judea and Samaria. But if we want to maintain the state of Israel as a Jewish democratic state, we have to separate from the Palestinians. Now, they are broadly speaking, two possible options of separating completely from the Palestinians. One is to uh, expel them, to force them out. Uh, you know, and I know, and every sound person know that this is totally impossible. That if we'll do that, it will be the pie of the universe for the rest of our uh, existence. We'll never do it. So the alternative is to pull out from territories and to allow them to establish their Palestinian state in the territories, which we believe are historically ours, but which we have to give up for the sake of achieving something which is much more important for the future. But Israel so did pull out of, of Gaza, for example, look where it is today. Even certain parts, uh, like Hebron and other areas, I think it was Bibi Netanyahu pulled out parts of Hebron, Look where we are today, where it didn't bring any more peace, only brought more terror. Number one, uh, the, the, we all tend to forget what was Gaza before we pulled out from Gaza. Was it any better? The, the, the only thing uh, different is that they, then they didn't have rockets, and now they have rockets. But in terms of uh, daily confrontations with terrorists from Gaza, it was the same and even worse, except for one thing. Now we don't occupy them. And had uh, we had a somewhat smarter approach, I would suggest that we will do things that may uh, contribute to improve the quality of life of the two million people that live in Gaza. I'm not talking about the terrorists. The terrorists may be a couple of thousand people, few thousand people that are torturing their, uh, their people and are torturing the people that live in the south part of the state of Israel because they are taking us with, with rockets and all this. But uh, if we do not do what we, I think we could do, we should do, again, not because, don't get me wrong, 
I don't suggest to do anything because I care for the other side. No, I care for ourselves. I care for our people. I care for our interest. And the question is, what is the interest of Israel? The interest of Israel is that the people living in the Gaza district will become less attracted to support uh, the terrorist groups and more attracted to find a proper way of living uh, peacefully with us because they may have a lot to lose if they will not do it. But so now, far it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked so far. Yeah, it doesn't work so far because they don't have nothing to lose. You, you, you may not know, okay, but the people that live in Gaza, for instance, don't have uh, electricity supply for more than a few hours a day because we prevent it. Uh, they don't have enough water because we prevent it. They don't have uh, works because we don't help them move freely and also find jobs, which they used to have in the state of Israel for many years and so on. So the question is, what can we do? Not because we care for them, but because we care for our interests and because we want to create a reality that may be uh, different in terms of improving their quality of life so that they will really genuinely be um, reluctant to cooperate with the terrorist organizations. We don't do it, and we hold uh, Gaza in a complete siege, and they don't have any freedom of movement. They can't go out to work in Egypt, for instance, We, because this is part of the Israeli siege over all of the uh, Gaza district. So now I don't say that if all this will be done, then terror will disappear uh, completely, almost immediately. It will take time. Listen, from their point of view, not from ours, okay? From their point of view, they look at it as if for more than 50 years, they were uh, occupied by us and they were denied the basic uh, rights that many other people in different parts of the world entertain, like the freedom of movement. They, uh, uh, something that limits their, their options of living in a different way. So they have de developed bitterness and hatred and whatnot, and it is reflected in their attitude and in their uh, uh, vicious uh, terrorist attacks against us, which are also influenced by the radical fundamentalist uh, approach of the Islamic parties. Uh, but they're not, they don't live as free people in Gaza. Look at the Hamas has control. In fact, even in Jerusalem, when the survey after survey comes out, when given a choice to live in Palestinian Authority or in the state of Israel in Jerusalem, the majority of the, re of the Arab residents of Jerusalem say they'd rather live in Israel. They'd have more rights in Israel than they do in, even under the Palestinian Authority, which is more moderate than Hamas. If they will, uh, if you ask me about Jerusalem, I will give you a, a, a two twofold answers. Uh, one, uh, they are today uh, all the Arab villages, which has never been part of the uh, Jewish state or the uh, land of Israel or Jerusalem, by the way. Beit Hanina, Jabal Mukaber, Isawiya, Walaje, all of these villages which are now surrounding Jerusalem, which is the Arab part of what is uh, called the uh, city of Jerusalem, 
were never part of the city of Jerusalem, are not connected in any way to the historical memories of the Jewish people, were never uh, uh, the uh, focus of our praying for thousands of years to return back to Jerusalem. Uh, we, we prayed to return back to Jerusalem, not to Jabal Mukabe or to Isawiya. Now, if all of the people that live there, which are now uh, already close to 40% of the population of Jerusalem, will soon become more than 50%, one day they will elect the mayor of the city of Jerusalem, and the mayor of the city of Jerusalem will be a Palestinian. Is that what we want? Is that is the realization of the Jewish dream of having Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish people, governed by a Palestinian? Let's face it. Why do we need all these villages uh, to be part of the of the city of well, Jerusalem? Well, the answer is more Jewish. In fact, it's hard for Jews to build in Jerusalem. I was there and saw some of the complications that some of the Jewish residents have in building in Jerusalem. Maybe the solution is to have more Jewish building in Jerusalem. Dave. Jerusalem, until 1967, was the third uh, largest city in Israel. And uh, after the Six-Day War, we have been building in uh, Jerusalem uh, cities, and are now part of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Pisgat Ze'ev, which has maybe 80,000 residents. Ramot, which has probably 70,000 residents. Gilo. Har uh, Choma, uh, which is really uh, uh, the official name, is Givat Shmuel, named after my deputy when I was mayor of Jerusalem, Shmuel Meir, who was one of the most uh, uh, devoted supporters of building in Jerusalem. And so when we built Har Choma, we named it after him. And there are maybe 50,000, 60,000 people living there. All of this is outside of the green lines of what was Jerusalem until 1967. So with all due respect, the uh, building outside of the original limits of the city uh, in Jerusalem has been very, very large and very excessive, and it did, doesn't stop and will not stop. But still... There are, uh, the Arabs are also increasing. And the, the, the 350,000 today will be 600,000 in a few years because the birth rate of the Arab population in Jerusalem is higher than the Jewish. And, and, and many Jews leave the city of Jerusalem, particularly the ultra-Orthodox, because they can't afford to buy the expensive houses in Jerusalem. And in those families, they have a chaseneh almost every year, as you know, because of the so many kids that they have. So they live, they live to live in Beitar, they live to live in Modi'in Elite, in Al-Ad, in all of these places which are inhabited by ultra-Orthodox, and they live Jerusalem. So the prospect is that we have to take it into account. We can't speak in slogans. You know, it's very easy to say all kinds of words. We will do, we will take over, we will build. The fact is that the Arabs are becoming closing the gap between them and the Jews in Jerusalem. And in and since they are uh, recognized by us as residents of Jerusalem, they have a full right to vote for the mayor of Jerusalem. And in no time, they will choose a mayor. There will be a Palestinian. And the Palestinian will be the mayor of the capital of the Jewish people. Is that what we want? 
Is that what I don't we... I don't think it'll happen. But uh, then we, we like I said, we need more Jews in Jerusalem. But you you make some good points that Jews have been moving out. But also, when I was there in in the old city, certain parts, Jews had trouble getting permits to build. I was shown that house yeah. after house. Listen, you know, I know of Jews that are having troubles building in New York as well. There are sometimes all kinds of zoning regulations in uh, residential areas, which make it more difficult to build, and particularly in a city like uh, Jerusalem, with the old city, with all of the historical buildings which exist and which must be protected, and the uh, areas which are very sensitive to different religions, it's more difficult sometimes. Yes, it's difficult. It's part of life. It's true about uh, the one thing you can be uh, certain about. There is not a policy by any Israeli government that I know of. Certainly it was not by my government and not when I was mayor for 10 years and not when I was prime minister to create all kinds of uh, obstacles to prevent Jewish building in the city of Jerusalem. So there is not. It's just that sometimes there are difficulties and we have to take it into account when we try to make a certain projection about what things will be like in the future. Our guest is former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. His fascinating book is called Searching for Peace, a Memoir of Israel. He wrote the bulk of it in 16 months when he was in prison in Israel. Let me ask you this. You know, you're the first Israeli Prime Minister to go to jail. Was it politically motivated? It seems like the, every Prime Minister in current times are looking to put him in prison, whether it's Bibi now and you, Rabin, they went after. What's going on? I'll tell you only this. I, th- I think you, you have to ask me this question because... You know, how can you ignore it? I mean, it's a historical fact, and it's uh, obvious. Uh, But I don't want to go into all the details because it will take a lot more time than we have. I can tell you only this, that uh, I was uh, convicted for accepting a political uh, contribution of 60,000 shekels, which is about $15,000, that uh, no one saw... No one saw the money. No one know where the money went. I never got it. I was not even accused of getting this money for myself. It was just said that it was donated to me by someone who may have had a certain interest uh, that uh, was connected to me, which was a false, it was a conspiracy. It was financed and manipulated by my political rivals, but I don't want to go into this. What Bibi is uh, indicted for is, and and actually he was, he admitted that he used to get presents for hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, on a regular basis. The only excuse that he made was that what's wrong about getting presents from friends? Uh, so I, I leave it to the court. I don't want to go into this. He's now in the middle of his uh, court case. And uh, sooner than later, it will be sorted out whether he accepted the uh, gifts uh, legally or, uh, or illegally. But there is a dramatic difference between the accusations which were put against me and those which he has to uh, deal with now. Are you referring to the Talansky affair where he supposedly gave you money and brown paper bags? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, all this was for political contributions. I never was accused of getting uh, illegal money from uh, from uh, Talansky. I was I was indicted, but I was never convicted for getting illegal money from uh, Talansky. And certainly, 
there was uh, no no uh, bribery uh, involved. He gave, gave me uh, he gave me uh, political contributions, and uh, no one ever say that Taransky has his own money or that Taransky has any particular interest for himself to want to give me money. He was referred to me by one of the most distinguished Jews in New York that uh, to help raise funds for me when I was running for mayor of Jerusalem. And the guy that uh, referred him to me was no other than Ludi Jesselson, one oh. of the greatest Jewish uh, in, the, uh, in the history of the Jewish community in New York. And because Taransky was raising funds for Shari Tzedek, which was the baby of uh, uh, Ludi Jesselson and... Uh, uh, and uh, um, and Charlie Bendai, but you know uh, he it, indeed he uh, raised funds for me, but it was funds which were contributions for my elections, and it was a very valuable funds, and I won these those elections, and no one said that this was uh, at the end. Of course, uh, it was proved to be uh, absolutely legal money that I got. Would you say that rivals such as people in Tanya or Shelley Adelson, who you write about in your book, were they somehow behind your troubles? Look, uh, Sheldon Adelson uh, go, uh, spent a uh, few hundred million dollars in order to uh, overthrow me. I mean, he spent, uh, he, he established this uh, uh, paper, a uh, newspaper. For one purpose only, to uh, overthrow me and to uh, uh, to uh, support Netanyahu uh, to replace me. So uh, what I can say is that uh, Sheldon Ederson made every possible vicious effort to get rid of me. Would you say he had led to your conviction or had a hand in which, uh, uh, I mean, uh, together he and, and Netanyahu and uh, some of his uh, Netanyahu's assistants created uh, uh, a group of uh, activists. Their sole, sole uh, purpose was to uh, try and get rid of me. And uh, they had a budget. They had... Uh, uh, lots of people that were working on a daily basis and investigating everything about me in order to try and reach that goal. Is that because you shifted from Likud to Kandima, from being right-wing to dealing with the peace process? Was that the main motivation? I don't know what was uh, all of uh, the, the motivation of everyone involved. I can only say this, that a very, very, very senior leader in the United States of America, and I prefer not to name him, but you can imagine, told me that uh, Sheldon Ederson said to him that uh, we need to get rid of Olmert. And when the guy asked why he's a good man, he said he's a traitor because he wants to uh, withdraw from the sacred territories of the Jewish people. So... Uh, this is uh, what what uh, uh, was the motivation, at least, of Sheldon Ederson. What was it like for you to be in prison? Here you are, the prime minister, powerful, and all of a sudden you end up in prison. What was it like for you? What was the transition? It's not pleasant, you know. You wouldn't want to replace me in place. But uh, this is something that's a strong person, 
particularly if he knows that he's uh, been misjudged and and uh, unjustifiably uh, been uh, convicted. It makes it not pleasant, not easy, but I make good use of the time. I wrote a book uh, which uh, uh, gives my side of the story, and this book became a bestseller in the state of Israel, uh, sold for tens of thousands of copies. So I think that uh, the general perception today of, in Israel is that uh, uh, many, many people, I can't tell you how many, you know, I can't uh, uh, give you numbers, but quite a lot of people uh, keep saying all the time in different occasions and different uh, opportunities in uh, the media as well as in uh, public meetings that it's so sad that Olmert is not the Prime Minister of Israel, that they wish he would have come uh, back to that position. So, uh, are, you, are you planning to run again? I heard rumors that you're thinking about it. Yeah, thinking is one thing, running is another thing. For the time being, I'm running almost every day, I'm jogging. So I'm running in the uh, the uh, uh, in Tel Aviv uh, on the uh, uh, along the sea, and uh, it's uh, it's a great experience, and I enjoy it very much. So everyone who asks me, "Will you run?" I said, "I already run." But the question is, will you move your jurisdiction from instead of running in Tel Aviv to running towards the Knesset? Are you going to change direction? Is that a possibility? <laughs> As I said, for the time being, I enjoy running in Tel Aviv. Now, when you were in prison, you were you write that you were a minion man, but you weren't really before. You were part of a minion. Tell us about that whole experience. I, 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 uh, I'm not uh, an observant Jew, but there were a couple of guys there. For them, it was very important that uh, there will be a minion, and we were only 10 in that uh, compound. So uh, it was very uh, important that uh, there will be a minion, so I uh, I just told everyone, listen, you like it, you don't like it, let's respect what is important for some of us who are here and participate in the minion, and we did it every day. And I, I felt very good about it. Have you continued since, or did you miss that part? Pardon? Did you miss that part of being a minion since you're out? I, I don't miss that part uh, on my daily because, as I told you, I'm not I'm not observant, but I have enormous respect. First of all, for the faith of others, for what others believe in, and particularly uh, for all the different you know religions. But definitely, first and foremost, for my religion and the people of my religion for whom it's very important. I have enormous respect for it, and uh, I was, uh, you know, I was mayor of Jerusalem for ten years, and my best uh, partners were the ultra-orthodox representatives in the city of Jerusalem, which represent a, a very important section of the city. And they always said, "I never promised too much, but I always kept my promises to the last, because I thought." that the ultra-Orthodox kids, for instance, deserve to study in uh, the same quality schools, uh, buildings of schools, as the uh, non-Haredi. And uh, when I uh, became mayor and I found out that thousands of uh, Orthodox kids uh, uh, study in caravans uh, under the worst possible conditions, you know, with uh, 40 degrees, 10 degrees heat without uh, air conditioners, and all of this in very crowded caverns. I built 
tens and more than tens, plenty of schools for the Haredi community because I thought that they deserved it. And uh, I passed a law when I was prime minister. I passed a law uh, which uh, the, the allows the uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, education system to be funded by the government on an equal basis as all the other uh, different um, uh, schools in the country. And there was a big debate at that time in the cabinet, and even the, uh, I think that one of the ministers, I don't remember exactly who, but one of the ministers said, if you will pass this law, I will resign. I say to him, no problem, give me your letter of resignation, <laughs> get out, uh, which he didn't. But I say this because uh, what I, uh, I don't have to be religious in order to respect the ultra-Orthodox community and the Orthodox community of my people. In as long as it is not at the expense of the rights of others, in as long as it doesn't require or doesn't force me to reject other parts of the community at the expense of uh, providing what the Haredim want. So I respected their needs, the, the legitimate needs, and I did it without any need to squeeze me to do it because it was within the context of politics. I did it because I thought that it was the right thing to do. Our guest is former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. His fascinating book is called Searching for Peace, a member of Israel. He wrote it during his 16 years incarceration in Israeli prison. What do you make today of the vilification of the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim, and the Israeli media, the tensions in the government? Has it changed so much from the time when you were Prime Minister? Definitely changed because, I, as I told you, I think my basic attitude was different. But let me tell you something. I think that the ultra-Orthodox leadership contributes a lot to this attitude and to this atmosphere. In what look, way? Look, the ultra-Orthodox leadership was from time immemorial. They were never uh, right-wing in the political uh, attitude. They were never uh, believers of greater Israel. They never thought that uh, settling in the territories is important. Uh, you know the position uh, that uh, was advocated by Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, for instance, who said that Kuach Nefesh is a lot more important than uh, building settlements. And so was the position of all the historical uh, leaders, all of the poskei hador of the, of the ultra-Orthodox uh, community. I, I, I know exactly what was the position of Rabbi Yitzhak Shalom El-Yashiv, uh, and uh, who was one of the greatest, greatest rabbis uh, and, and uh, religious leaders, and what was the, uh, the uh, position of uh, all the other great rabbis. Uh, and now the uh, religious parties, in order to squeeze the former government of Israel, to give them all kinds of things which I'm not certain that they need or that they deserve to get, they are ready to uh, support this uh, extreme nationalistic right-wing attitudes which were never really natural to them and which are not really representative of their fundamental principles that they believe in. And that's why they have uh, generated this attitude of uh, the, uh, a large part of the Israeli population that said that you're ready to 
sell us for your interests. Actually, though, I think a lot of the thinking of the Israeli religious leaders were that originally Pekuach Nevesh was that you can give up territory. When they saw that didn't work, they turned to the other position where their belief was that giving up territory is a kind of question of Pekuach Nevesh, of saving lives. Have I never heard any of these rabbis saying it? This is the interpretation offered by the shlichim, which does not really represent what they, they think. And I entirely disagree with it. I think that what is represented to them by some of their uh, shlichim uh, is that uh, this is the only way that we can get what we deserve to get in terms of supporting our education system, in terms of support of our yeshivas, and so on and so forth. And it's not true. They could get it from me, and that this is the only way to prevent Israel from passing a law which will force the uh, the uh, the uh, recruitment of uh, yeshiva bochus to the army. I can say here and now, and I will not change my position, uh, my attitude, and I have said it in Israel long ago, I think that Israel should decide explicitly, publicly, and officially that we don't want the yeshiva bochus to serve in the army, we don't need them to serve in the army, and we are ready to negotiate a national service on a partial basis so that they will continue to study in the yeshivas every, for two years in the yeshivas every day for six hours and then they will uh, do a national service for six hours for two years and they will be paid for the national service that they do so that they will not be cut out from the yeshivas they will not be forced to serve in the army and i have no political interest i simply think that we don't need the yeshivas to serve in the army anyway. The Israeli army doesn't need it. In fact, it will be more damaging to the security of the state of Israel and more a waste of resources to try and recruit them to the army uh, rather than to let them be more involved in the community life on at least a partial basis uh, for a period of time. And, uh, and uh, I think that that can uh, resolve a lot of the conflicts between the Haredim and the non-Haredim in the Israeli society and Israeli politics. I have so many more questions. We're going to have to invite you back for a future Baruch. As may I recommend your book, Searching for Peace, A Memoir of Israel. While we may not agree on everything, it's an important book. If the book becomes a movie, Mr. Prime Minister, which movie actor... Can you show me the book? <laughs> uh, okay. Now, uh, now, he looks nice. Now, if, if it becomes a movie, which movie actor do you want to portray, to portray you? Which Hollywood act do you want to portray or Ayodome if it comes into a movie? I don't think. Uh, number one, I don't expect it to become a movie. Number two, I think that I can play myself quite well. <laughs> number three, number three, if worse come to worse, I like Paul Newman, but I heard that he is a little bit too old and he has passed away a few years ago. <laughs> so we'll see. Anyway, thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to having you back again, and thank you for engaging in the dialogue. It's so important that we have these communications. Thank Thank you you so much. Hey, this is Alan Dershowitz, um, inviting you to tune in to The Dersh Show, The Dersh Show, where we discuss the most important issues of the day. You know, The Dersh Show, all that's missing is the wits, and that's what I need you for, to provide the wits. We broadcast Monday through Thursday evenings at 11 p.m., courtesy of Rumble on WVIP 93.5 FM HD2, TalklineNetwork.com, and our 24-hour listening line at 
793-0382. Please join us on the Dirt Show to really get a grasp of what's going on in our world today, and you'll hear it directly from me through my lens, which you know is always going to be your lens. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast, the pulse beat of the Jewish community. For continuous Jewish programs, talklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the talklinenetwork.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.